And if you would turn uh, with me to Galatians 6, and this evening we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. Uh, if you haven't got one of the church Bibles or your own Bible, uh, you know, go get one. It will really help you to follow along with what we're doing. Uh, they're at the back, or just nudge someone next to you to go get you one. Uh, but if you have one of the church Bibles, uh, Galatians 6 is page 1172. And in the large print Bibles, it is page 1813. Uh, and let me read uh, Galatians 6 from verse 1. Where Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. This is God's word. And I've called this sermon on the bearing of burdens. On the bearing of burdens. Uh, in 2016, our family uh, flew to Los Angeles. Uh, and on the second day of our time there, we went to, or I went to rather, a, a conference a pastor's conference there. Uh, and as I arrived and I checked into the conference, uh, the person at the desk very kindly said, we have a gift for you, Mr. Hope. And the gift was a big box of books and a $40 voucher to buy more books. Well, this might sound really exciting, I was a bit jet-lagged, and at first I said, oh, you could have given me $40 off the ticket, <laughs> which they didn't find funny. Uh, but what I also thought was, how on earth am I going to get all these books back home with the weight allowance that I have on the plane? There's no way that I can put all these in my bag and then be able to carry that bag on the airplane back to the UK. And even though that trip was five weeks, it was a long time before I had to figure out how to do this, that was what was going on in my mind. And when I got home, that was very much what was on Paula's mind as well. How are we going to get all these books home? Well, how did we do it? Well, of course, they didn't all go in my bag. We spent five weeks as we traveled around putting books in all the five bags that we took with us, surrounded by all of our clothes, so the weight was spread between the whole of our family. As it happened, uh, because... The bags were quite heavy. I did end up carrying most of them, but at the very least, the, the, the weight was split between the five of us. And because that weight was split, we all could get home with all that we needed. I tell that story because that is kind of what this passage is about. We all have burdens that we carry. And as God's people, we spread the load 
around the family of God so that all of us reach home together as his people. Now, chapter 5 has been about life in the Spirit. Uh, and the battle that, the, the, that that life is between the flesh and the Spirit. Last time we saw in uh, chapter 5, verse 25, how we keep in step with the Spirit. And you may remember that phrase, keep in step, is like a, a drumbeat that an army marches to. And we saw it was like at the coronation when all of those soldiers marched to the beat of the drum in step together. And Christians are described in the New Testament as soldiers. We are at war with the flesh and the devil, but we are not called to fight alone. We are called to fight together as a, as a family. And we do so in chapter 6 by carrying one another's burdens. You see that phrase there in verse 2? We see it there, carry each other's burdens. And we see that is really the key to what these verses are about that we're looking at tonight. We don't fight alone. We fight together by carrying each other's burdens. How do we do this? Well, Paul shows us a command in verses 1 and 2. He gives us a caution in verses 3 to 5. And then in verse 6, we see some collaboration. So hopefully those points will help you to follow along with where Paul's going. But in verse 1, first of all, I want you to see the phrase he uses a number of times in Galatians. Brothers and sisters. This is a fight that we fight as a family. And in verse 10, we see the phrase family of believers, which we'll see uh, at some point soon. Uh, Family of believers. Uh, These are uh, are words that speak of how Christians fight together as a family, as brothers and sisters united together. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see, first of all, the command, carry each other's burdens. But in verse 1, we see a, a specific type of burden to help one another with, the burden of fighting sin. So look at verse 1. Paul begins, if someone is caught in a sin. Now, when you, you hear that, well, I say you, I, when I first read that, I thought being caught out, like you've, you've caught them red-handed. But that's not what this means. It's not, it's not to catch someone out, but what it means is literally to be overtaken by or to be entrapped by. So if you imagine we are soldiers marching together to the beat of the drum, it's, it's, it's a soldier who has kind of been entrapped or ensnared as they're marching. Now, of course, someone has done wrong. Someone is at fault. It's not walking away from Christ completely. It's being ensnared on your march. This is someone who has fallen into sin, but is repentant of sin. They may not even know they've sinned. It may be through ignorance. That's something that happens to all Christians. I mean, none of us have reached perfection, have we? We all struggle with sin. We all fall in our, in our, in our, and trip up in our march. But at the same time, it's not talking about every sin we ever commit. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, we read that love covers a multitude of sins in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. This verse call, calls us to help one another by restoring them, but it doesn't mean that every single time we see someone do something wrong, you've got to call them out. I mean, that would be just miserable, wouldn't it? It would be a horrible place to be. Most likely, what Paul has in mind is a a sin struggle 
probably that's been shared with someone. And most certainly, it's a struggle that is observed as a pattern of life that someone has kind of gotten into. Not every one-off thing that happens, but a struggle that has been ongoing. And when someone is entrapped in this way, notice what Paul says. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Uh, You who live by the Spirit refers here to Christians. So this is a responsibility on all of us as brothers and sisters. But living by the Spirit is also someone who is living the life that they ought to be living, and so has a kind of a maturity in mind, I think. We're to live according to how Paul really calls us to in Galatians 5, in step with the Spirit. It's not like a, when he says, you who live by the Spirit, it's not a, an elite kind of uh, group of Christians who are, have the role of, of telling people when they've sinned. This is a role for all of us as Christians as we walk by the Spirit. And what do we do when... We see a brother or sister struggling, we restore that person, restore them. The Greek word behind restore means to mend what is broken. In fact, it was used um, by Greeks as a word of medicine. It, It refers to setting back in place a fractured bone or a dislocated joint. When I was a teenager, I used to play in a football team. Uh, with, a, with a boy who regularly um, would have his kneecap dislocate. It would end up going behind his leg. It was really horrible to happen. And I remember we had a physio, and there was a particular time that this happened on the pitch. His kneecap just went, and he was lying on the floor in tears. And the physio came on, and I watched the physio put the kneecap back in place. But he did so... Some of you are like looking like you're really grossed out by this, but he, I think it was really cool. He didn't, <laughs> but he, he did so really gently. He, he, he didn't just yank him or anything like that. He gently set the kneecap back in place. He didn't carry on playing. He was then stretched off and had a rest, uh, but the physio did it gently. He didn't, he didn't amputate the leg. He didn't hit him and, or knock it in place. He gently restored the dislocated joint. It was a painful process, yes, but gently done. So when someone sins, we we don't kick them out of church like an amputation. We don't just start shouting and screaming at them like you knock it really hard. What Paul says is to restore them, but to do so gently. You see that word there, gently. Gently here, it does not mean leniency does not mean we ignore wrongdoing, but it speaks of the way we deal with people who are caught up in sin. It means we are sensitive, not self-righteous. It means we're not belittling. It means we're not gossiping. It means we're not mocking. The aim is to restore in a loving way because we want this brother or sister to be following Jesus for God's glory, for their good, and for the good of the whole family of God. And that's what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 18, when he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. That's what Paul's talking about. But Jesus goes on to say what happens when they aren't won over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, 
tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That means they are no longer recognized as a brother or sister. They no longer are a member of the family of faith as far as we're concerned. But notice the aim is to win them over. The aim is for them to listen. The aim is for repentance. The aim is, as Paul says here, to restore that person, you see? Now, there is a a big trend, and I've no doubt that many of you here are part of this, of watching YouTube videos of people falling over. Do Do you watch those videos? Yeah, many of you do. And you spend time um, laughing at these people, and admittedly, when people fall over, it is quite funny sometimes, isn't it? Uh, and, and we watch those videos and we think, ah, oh, look, they've fallen over and we have a, have a good laugh. But that's not, on a serious point, how we're to treat people who fall into sin, is it? We must not mock them. It's a temptation to do that. Oh, look at them. Look at how stupid they are. How could they do such a thing? That's not how we're to treat people, is it? Neither do we treat them with malice or gossip. We speak to them, not about them. Neither neither do we display that kind of hypocritical outrage as if we've never done anything wrong. And we we, we see this, don't we, at the moment when people are publicly disgraced all over the news. And often the people who are publicly disgracing them if you just looked into their lives just a little bit, or every bit as bad. What do we do? We restore people gently. That's what Paul says. But notice the end of verse 1. Paul says, But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Watching yourselves means that we need to be aware that when we are dealing with other people's sin, we also are capable of falling ourselves. And I think this helps us in two ways. First of all, it helps us to be gracious to others because we know that when we're dealing with someone else who's struggling with sin, we could just as easily be that person. Whenever I see someone fall into sin, I know that that could just as easily be me if I do not guard my heart, watch my life, and accept restoration myself from brothers and sisters. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So it helps us to be gracious to others when we watch our own hearts. But we also need to watch ourselves by being discerning who we help. What I mean is this, it is not good for you to help someone else if that causes you to fall into that sin yourself. Another example is, it is not appropriate for me as a man to go and without the support of my wife, go and help another woman with her sin. I've got to watch myself. There are other sisters in the church that can help with that. It's not appropriate for me on my own to go and deal with those things. There may be areas of life that you are trying to avoid that if not avoided can cause you to fall then go send another brother or sister to help that person. Watch yourselves. This is a a serious uh, undertaking in the family of God, but it's one where we have to watch ourselves and be very careful. And so we need to restore gently and carefully. Let me ask you, have you got someone in, in your life 
to whom you can be restored by? Or do you hide your sin or try to get away with it? And are you willing to help others with their sin, restoring them in the gentle way that we are told here? Well, helping others bear the burden of fighting sin is part of being in the family of God. it's, It's God's means of holding us fast, of helping us persevere until the end. But in verse 2, burden bearing widens out from helping fight sin to all the struggles of life. Look again with me at verse 2. Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And so the immediate context is helping with sin, but this verse applies more generally. Uh, in, In a war, which is what we are in as God's people, Comrades in arms are concerned about all areas of life of their comrades so that they can continue marching together. And one thing we need to understand from this verse is that all of us, every single brother or sister in this fellowship has burdens to carry. Everybody does. From the youngest member to the oldest, we all have burdens to carry. In verse 1, we all struggle with the burden of temptation to sin. But we carry all sorts of burdens. There are physical ailments, mental health problems, there's dementia, there's family crises, there's marriage problems, there's single parenting, there is caring for parents and spouses, there is unemployment, there is financial difficulty, and there are leaking roofs and flat tires and all sorts of other things. The list is endless that in this fellowship happens every single week of the life of this church. I mean, I don't mean every one of those things happens every week, but all of those things, all those kinds of things are happening all the time. Every single one of us has burdens all of the time, various kinds, various degrees. And if at the moment you feel kind of not very burdened, if you live long enough, you will have burdens to carry. That will be very big at times over your life. They change depending on circumstances and stage of life, but all of us have burdens. That's what I want you to see. The problem we so often have, though, is that we believe that we are self-sufficient. I don't need others to help me. I can carry these burdens all on my own. I mean, God will help me. I don't need anybody else. Well, let me tell you this. Paul the Apostle disagrees with you. And because Paul disagrees, and he's writing this in the Bible, which is the Word of God, God disagrees with you as well. In fact, this verse tells us that self-sufficiency is a sin. Self-sufficiency is not a sign of bravery. It is a sign of pride. And if we are commanded to bear each other's burdens, then suffice to say, we are commanded to allow other people to bear those burdens for us. I mean, if none of us had burdens to share or were not willing to share, then we can't fulfill this command. All of us are burden carriers, but all of us also are burdens. And so there's a a twofold danger that we can fall into with this. On the one hand, we don't help others bear burdens because, well, it's too menial for us, or I can't be bothered, or it's too much effort. 
We can disobey this command in that way. But on the other hand, we can be so proud that we'll not allow anyone else to shoulder a burden for us. And both of those are signs of pride, you see? They're both signs of what we'll see in verse 3, of thinking you are something when you are not. And so let me encourage you. Share your burdens with others. Because we have a church here who would love and do love to help one another. I mean, we do, don't we? We'd like, do you like helping other people? I mean, if you're, if you're shaking your head, that's a real problem. But most of us would say that we, we like to help. You have a family here who want to help you. We have organizations in place within the church for, for lifts and meals and visits. There are brothers and sisters you can talk to and pray with. And so let me encourage you to, to share those burdens. But also let me encourage you, as brothers and sisters, and some of us may need to hear this too, to step up, sacrifice your time and your money and your emotional energy in helping others to bear those burdens. I think the comment, uh, at least from my experience, that I hear the most from people who I know are struggling is this comment. But there are others in more need. Yeah, probably there are. There's always someone worse off than you are. There's probably someone worse off than you are in the church. But we have a church big enough that can help them too. Years ago, um, I remember uh, when me and Paula had our, our, our kitchen done. Our old kitchen was ripped out. And a new one was being put in. And for a couple of weeks, uh, we had no way of cooking except for the microwave, and the microwave is, is rubbish when you've got five to cook for. I didn't want to have to pay out a fortune for takeaway meals, and so what I did is I went and asked a bunch of people at church if the five of us could come round for dinner, and I had a calendar and said, which night could we come? And I asked everybody uh, if we could come round for dinner, and some people were a bit surprised that I did this, like, uh, in fact, the people that were the least surprised, interestingly, were the ones from, from Europe. <laughs> they just said, that's not very British of you, Steve. But you know what? We had a great time. And no one said this to me, but I reckon they did too. Uh, we, we were a great company. No, but, uh, but together, we enjoyed sharing that burden that I had of, of needing a meal for my family. And it was a, a great couple of weeks. I haven't been invited many places since. <laughs> no, but we, had a, we did have a really uh, great couple of weeks sharing that, that burden um, uh, of, of needing a meal. But what I'm saying is this, that we have to be willing both to ask for help and we have to be willing to give that help too, you see? And in doing this, Paul says, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, Paul has spoken in Galatians about not being under the law now, this is not like the law of Moses. The law of Christ is basically a way of summing up what Jesus taught and the example he set. And it's summed up basically in John chapter 13, verses 34, in verse 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you want a, a little summary of the law of Christ, John chapter 13 is where it's at. This kind of radical and beautiful Christian community shows 
Jesus to the world and draws people to him. So that's the command. Bear each other's burdens. Secondly, we see Paul give a caution, which is pride. So there is a a kind of person who does not carry the burdens of others, but rather just makes burdens for others in a bad way. Uh, This is the proud person. It's the kind of burden you are not supposed to give to others. The person who thinks that they are better than others. And in verse 3, we meet this person. And notice what Paul says. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Now, we do have a tendency to make much of ourselves, an attitude of pride. Now, at the same time, uh, thinking you're something can also mean thinking really rubbish about yourself, like I'm a really rubbish person. Um, But that's also thinking you are something, just something not very nice. We're not supposed to do that either. But the problem here is more focused on, on pride. If we're focused just on ourselves, we make ourselves into something we're not, then Paul says we are deceiving ourselves. Why? Because none of us are really that great. We have the same attitude then as the tax collector in Luke 18 when he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, uh, robbers, uh, not the tax collector, the Pharisee, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. The, ta- the Pharisee there thinks he's something when he's not. And the ante- ante- antidote to pride is found in verse 4. Notice what Paul says, each one should test their own actions. How do we do that? We examine ourselves not against the person caught in sin, not against the person who we see as the one who really needs all the help and we don't. No, we examine ourselves against the Word of God. We get a right assessment from the Scriptures of what we are really like, and that will show us our sin, our need of forgiveness. It will bring us low, and it will ingrain within us humility. But it will also help us to see as we look at the scriptures, where we are making real progress. That's what, in verse 4, Paul means when he says about pride in ourselves. He doesn't mean we're supposed to be all puffed up or actually literally be really proud of, of who we are. What he's saying is that the scriptures is where we can truly assess what we're like and see where we really stand. Because normally, we assess ourselves not by looking at God's word, How do we normally do it? How do we normally look at how good or bad we are? We compare ourselves to others, don't we? You assess how how well you're doing by looking at someone else and you think, well, I kind of want to be at their level, but man, I'm glad I'm not like them. That's what we tend to do to judge where we are. And so we make ourselves look much better at something by comparing ourselves to people who are way worse in our mind than we are. That's what the Pharisee did. He compared himself to the tax collector and thought he was great. Now, when I'm at Discoverers and I play football, right, I'm epic. <laughs> I score all the time. I dribble around the little children. I can budge them out the way and all of those kinds of things. I look like Pele at Discoverers. But I also play football on a Wednesday night, don't I? And anyone who plays with me there will tell you that whatever the opposite of Pele is, that's what I look like there. There's a true assessment of myself when I'm playing against A true assessment of ourselves is not found when we're comparing ourselves with others. 
It is found when we look at God's word and see where we really are. Comparing ourselves against other people makes you proud and it stops you from carrying burdens. Why? Because comparing ourselves against others makes us then want to appear better than we really are so that we present ourselves as super Christians which makes others feel rubbish and then adds to their burdens. Also, the need to be better than others stops us wanting to help because if I help them, well, I might not look better than them anymore. And all of this in the end really just adds a burden upon ourselves because it's exhausting, isn't it? Comparing yourself to others and trying to be like them or better than them or ahead of them. We either feel rubbish for not being as good or proud that we feel we're better but stressed at trying to stay there. Do you see that there's a better way here? We come to God's word. We acknowledge our faults. We receive help to live for him. We thank God, yes, when we do make progress. And then we help others to make progress too. In their part of the battle. You can't judge how well you're doing as a Christian by just comparing yourselves to others. And it's pointless also because look at the end of verse 5 where Paul says, For, so don't compare yourselves to someone else. Why? For each one should carry their own load. Now at first you might be thinking, this sounds like a bit of a contradiction from verse one, where we're called, or verse 2 where we're called to carry burdens. But it isn't a contradiction when you realize that the word for load here is a different word in the original to the word for burden in verse 2. In verse 2, the burden is a crushing weight that you can't carry alone. But the word for load is more like a backpack you would take on a walk that you can carry. And when you go on a walk, if you go with other people, which, you know, when we're doing the thing for the walk for taste, all of us will carry a backpack but some of us will have more in it than others depending on what we can carry. You know, one person might be able to carry the first aid kit and a lot of water. Someone else might not be able to manage that. We each have our own load to carry, you see? In fact, and I hope this isn't too confusing, but the word for load here is actually the same word translated as burden in Matthew 11, verse 30, when Jesus says there, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden that Jesus is talking about is one we can carry. It's light. It is fit for us. It is what he gives us to carry. In other words, there is a work, a load, a light burden, if you like, that God has given us to do, you to do, me to do, that he's not given everyone else to do. Each of us has a work from God that is different, both in type, in in size, in scope, and all sorts of things. And so there's no point in comparing yourself to others because you've not got to carry their load. You carry your own load, the load that God has given you. This comes up a bit later in, John, in John's gospel where Peter looks back at John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You've got your own work to do. So we have to faithfully fulfill the work God has given us and to carry that load. No one's going to carry it for you. We carry it ourselves. We give account of it ourselves. You don't need to compare it with others. 
So verses 3 to 5 tell us that we must make sure that we assess our own lives and deal with our own sin and make sure we are doing what God has called us to do before we go and point out the faults of others. And that's exactly what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice here, you are supposed to still look at the speck at your brother's eye and deal with it, but not before taking the plank out of your own eye. And so what Paul is saying here in Galatians is the same kind of thing. Examine yourself. Work out where you are in God's word. And then you'll be more able then to help others carry their burdens. Finally, in verse 6, Paul gives us an example of this kind of mutual burden bearing. We see the collaboration between the instructor and instructed. So look again at verse 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now this verse does seem a bit odd, plonked right here. It it, it speaks of, of churches providing for or sharing with those who teach them. Why is it here? Why does Paul kind of move to this kind of subject? Well, I think the reason is this. Our ability to fulfill the command to carry each other's burdens especially the burden of helping one another in the fight of sin, is in direct proportion to our grounding in the Word of God. If we're not able to understand the Word of God, if we're not under the teaching of the Word of God, well then you won't be able to effectively help others carry their burdens because you won't be pointing them to God's Word. Also, one of the ways that we bear each other's burdens is in discussing what we're learning as a church at places like home group, where we apply what we've been learning into each other's lives. Uh, So often when when I'm trying to help others uh, and and speak to them and and, and counsel them, I'm I'm almost always referring to something that was preached in the previous weeks at the church. Churches that do not teach God's word faithfully do not care well for each other and they end up tolerating sin rather than restoring one another. And so Paul explains how we ought to care well for those who instruct us in the word. He's saying that there ought to be people in the church set aside for this instruction so that we can all together bear burdens according to the word of God that we are taught. And so to set someone aside means that they need to be paid in order to do the work. And so do you you see there the the mutual burden-bearing going on there? The preacher bears the burden of teaching God's word and equipping the saints for the work of ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians. In other words, actually, the the preacher equips the saints, you could say, for the bearing of burdens. And the church members bear the burden of financially supporting those individuals so that they can do that work. Uh, Later on in this year, we're we're going to be uh, publishing uh, a book about the history of Pelsall Evangelical Church. 
And um, because I mean, Tim have been able to read advanced copies of the drafts of that, and it's a wonderful uh, piece of work. Uh, but one of the things I was struck by in the early days of this church was that when the church reached 10 working men, they then paid a full-time pastor. They waited till they had 10 working men who were committed to giving 10% of their salary to the work of the church in order that they could pay the pastor the salary to do the instruction of the Word of God. And I was, I was struck by that. It was a, a really great way, a really wonderful example of exactly what Paul's talking about here. That burden was shared. And I would say as well, further than that, sharing in all things is more than just money. I think he also means here sharing by listening and growing in faith as a response to the Word of God, which actually encouraged the teachers in their work as they see the believers growing. Uh, I, w- I would say that as, as a, a pastor here, that this church really does excel at what Paul says here in verse 6. Uh, just like in the history of the church all those years ago, where 10 working men committed to giving 10% to pay their pastor, that has followed through till today. Your pastors are well cared for, both financially and in the response you have to the preaching of God's word. Uh, Tim and Megan, Paula and I, and I've uh, spoke, uh, spoken to Tim about saying this as well. Um, this is from all of us. We can assure you that we are blessed at this church. Blessed, big time. And I can assure you that sadly, that's not the case in many, many churches. We see pastors that are struggling in all sorts of ways because the churches aren't bearing the same burden that they should do as you model in the church here. And so I want to say thank you for the way that you do verse 6 so well in bearing burdens for us. But I want to also, as well as giving a word of thanks, I want to give a word of warning and challenge, I think, to a growing congregation. Because part of the mutual bearing of burdens here is to understand that the role of the elders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and the bearing of burdens and not to do all of the ministry of burden-bearing themselves. When a church is very small, there is an expectation, and it's easier to do, for a pastor to be able to answer every call that comes their way and visit everybody very regularly. But in a church of our size, as we grow, we must and have to, we have to share that burden of caring for one another so that the pastors can focus on the main role of instruction, which is what Paul says here. And that's going to be more of a challenge as we grow. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying don't call us or anything like that. What I'm saying is, as a church grows, that burden of care must be shared even more between us all. And that's a challenge that we're going to face in the days to come. So I want to close, though, just uh, finally with two uh, final points. I want to give one challenge and one cause of worship in conclusion. Here's the challenge. I want you to to answer this question yourselves. 
in your encounters with people, are they more burdened or less burdened by your presence in their life? May we be those who are refreshing to one another and helpful as we seek to bear burdens. Are, you, are people refreshed by you? But the cause for worship is this, and this is really amazing. As we bear one another's burdens, we are pointing people towards and reflecting Jesus who bore the burden that none of us can carry. Peter writes this, He himself bore our sins. That's something none of us can do. We can help each other fight sin. We can't bear sin. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That's what we help each other with. By his wounds you have been healed. That is a cause for worship, isn't it? That he has borne our sins. And this evening we get to remember that as we come uh, to the Lord's table, where we remember that. But before we come to the Lord's table, we are going to sing together uh, a song that really uh, encapsulates what we've been talking about in terms of burden-bearing as his people. Uh, we're going to sing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Let's stand uh, and sing together before we come uh, around the Lord's table together.